Testing, one, two, three. Yeah. Testing. Okay. As you can imagine, I'm a gal with a little extra time on her hands. I'm just adventure enough to take a chance on meeting my match. Are you there? Elizabeth Ramirez had up a, a pen pal ad, and it, you know, it, it stated very clearly what her crime was. I'm an open-minded, energetic woman. Physical activities are my favorite, and I can make a sport out of nearly anything. And so I wrote her a letter. I truly believe that you can laugh, you can get through, you can get through anything. As you can imagine, I laugh a lot. It took me about two weeks to get up the nerve to, to actually drop it in the, in the mailbox. You know, and then I finally took it down, dropped it in the mailbox, and off it went. I've had the pleasure of meeting and getting to know many people throughout my life that come from various backgrounds. When it comes down to it, I think that we're all not that different. And about three weeks later, I <laughs> get back this letter. Uh, I'm pleased to say that prison is just a stopover for me, and I want to take advantage of each opportunity that presents itself. This chipper, cheery, I'm so glad you wrote, you know, it just... It which threw me even more. I think on, on some level, what I wanted or what I was expecting was, you know, somebody who talked about alien invaders and government conspiracies and was, you know, just right off the deep end. But here was this letter from somebody who was writing at, you know, probably a first year college level, um, could express emotions, could develop ideas, you know, wrote really well. It was obviously pretty lucid. Um, and that just confused me more. My main objective of placing this ad is for friendships that I can continue long after I leave here. I'm coming into this experience with no expectations, but high hopes and my greatest wish is that you'll do the same. I can't wait to meet you. Would you be willing to discuss your crime with me? Um, I don't remember. Um, I know just me and my friends were talking about things, and I was like, well, I'm pretty simple. I don't... Um, I'm not real, I didn't experience a lot in life, so I mean, I'm just, I like sports, and uh, you know, I like to try, I love the outdoors, and you know, I want to go, wish I could, you know, I want to go out and, you know, be adventurous and share things and stuff, so that's kind of how what I wrote, and that's why I said I'm just, you know, want to just meet people, and when you're in the internet, you meet people that live, you know, they live different lifestyles, and not lifestyles, but they live, yeah, different lifestyles, because you have people like outdoors, like fishing, doing this, and doing that, and those are the type of things that I wanted to share with people, because it's out there, it's not about prison, it's not about what's going on, but it's what's going out in the world, you know, to see where they go in their life, and what they share, and what they learn. She wrote back and said, there's not much to discuss, because it never happened, you know, these are these are false allegations. These are just stories that these two little girls told, and she started telling me the story. In 1997 in San Antonio, Texas, Elizabeth Ramirez was sentenced to prison for 37 and a half years. Her friends, Anna Vasquez, Cassie Rivera, and Christy Mayhew, were sentenced to 15 years. The San Antonio Four, as they came to be known, were four young women, four young Latina women from San Antonio who were lesbians. And this was back in the early 90s. And they were all good friends. And they were accused of, over a two-day period, one summer, raping two little girls, a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old, in the most sadistic and violent ways. Debbie Nathan is a journalist based in New York City. The two little girls who were the alleged victims were Liz Ramirez's nieces. And Liz was good friends with the other three young women who were accused. And during the summer, 
right before the accusation surfaced, the four young women had been hanging out together in Liz's apartment, just the way friends do. And um, Liz had been asked by her sister's partner if she'd like to take care of the little girls. They were on summer vacation, and she said yes. And so they were in the apartment during the summer at the same time that Liz and her friends were there. When the trial was happening, Debbie Nathan was working as a journalist in Texas. But she didn't hear anything about this case. It wasn't in the local newspapers, and Google didn't exist. Debbie heard about the case from a man named Daryl Otto, and by then, they'd spent nine years in prison. We hear from people all the time saying that they're related to or they're friends with people who've been falsely accused and convicted. Debbie volunteers for an organization called the National Center for Reason and Justice. They're a nonprofit that advocates for people wrongfully accused of harming children. It's very unusual to hear from somebody who has no relationship, who's not a longtime friend or family member of the person that they're trying to help. So it was very, very unusual for us to hear from someone who wanted us to do something about people in San Antonio, Texas, who was from the Yukon in Canada and had no relationship, um, no family relationship or you know neighborhood or whatever relationship to the person they were trying to help. Daryl lives a very long drive from San Antonio, Texas, 5,530 kilometers, the distance between Lisbon and Moscow, plus another 1,000 K. Um, my name is Daryl Otto. I live um, west of Whitehorse, about 45 miles west of Whitehorse, a place called Mendenhall. Um, I've been here... I came out here September of 2001, and I've been here so almost 13 years now. And out here, it was just an empty lot when I got here. Um, I had, I think, about 14 dogs at that point. So the first thing I had to do was clear an area to put them in. So I cleared this this area in front of us here, cleared that out, and burnt everything, and then put posts in the ground for the dogs. Um, put in a pen. I had a pen that I hauled out here. Um, did that, and then I was living in a, like a an army type wall tent at that point. So that was September. And I started building a, a cabin October 15th of 2001. A friend of mine came out with a, he had a little sawmill, came out here and we cut down trees and built this a cabin out here, 12 foot by 20 foot, story and a half cabin. And we started that October 15th and I ended up moving in on the 30th of November when it dropped to minus 35. I was living in a tent, which was not a whole lot of fun. I couldn't keep, you know, couldn't keep water from freezing and couldn't keep myself warm. So it was amazing how quick you can build when, when the temperature drops to that level. With a Yukon winter coming on, it, you, you can make incredible progress. But it was like, you know, we were banging nails in and, and, the, and the wood was frozen. You know, it was, it was pretty tough. But, but I'm one of the last people to sort of, I'm one of the last holdouts as far as being off grid out here. These are working huskies chained up to wooden dog houses most of the day but they live for the long winter to be hitched up to the sled to pull Daryl through the arteries of trail in the woods that surround his cabin. I think I've always wanted to work with animals, you know, and, and the idea of traveling around in the, in, the, in the wilderness with a dog team really appealed to me, so I started, you know, I worked with some other um, 
professional dog mushers, racers, and, you know, and learned that way. And then I started just um, collecting my own dogs. And um, at one time I had, I had like almost 40 here, which was way too many. So it's been, you know, 17 years since I got my first dog. But I, I really enjoy traveling um, in the bush with the dogs and back into the wilderness. You can get places that you can't get any other way. And I think um, when you're out in the bush like that with dogs, you're alone, but you're not really alone. You know, you have the dogs with you. So, Does it get lonely living out here? I've spent, you know, at this point, most of my adult life alone in the woods. And, I'm, you know, I'm happy doing that. I like to think. I have, you know, lots of stuff that keeps me interested. I like to read. And I just find that, you know, people drain my energy and I, you know I, I teach at the college and so you know, I do have contact with people and but there's a limit to it you know and then I need to be out here and just kind of process stuff and I like to think I like to read you know I'm I'm, I'm very curious I'm interested in everything you know I'm 55 years old and I still want to know everything and, and such a, a huge variety of stuff and this time it was sexual female predators what motivates them and somehow, in some kind of internet wormhole, he stumbled upon the four women in San Antonio, Texas, who were accused of raping two little girls. But it didn't make sense to him. He found Elizabeth Ramirez on a website called writeaprisoner.com. Her name came up in a simple search. It cost her $40. Um, he just kind of introduced himself, told me like where he, um, I don't even know if I still have a copy of his first letter. Um, I know he kept a copy of all my letters, but, um, and just kind of just, uh, told me about himself and asked me about my case. And, uh, every time he wrote, it's like, he asked me the same questions, but like kind of turned it and switched it off, kind of seeing if I was telling the truth or not. She, you know, we started this correspondence back and forth, um, where she would send me information and, you know, tell me the story of what happened. And then she would usually, I mean, everything she said, there was somebody I could call or there was a document, some piece of paper she could back up. Uh, that kind of life, that interested me a lot because he liked the outside, you know, the winner and the photos that he sent. And, you know, I like the outside world and everything. So he sent me a lot of pictures and then he sent me pictures of him with the dog sleds. And that's kind of something that we talked about a lot, you know, and uh, he kind of kept me outside in the world. And uh, it was interesting the kind of life that he lived because he was just free-spirited and did whatever he wanted. He was spontaneous. If I want to do this, I just go do it. One of the reasons she was so life, happy you know? to hear from me is she'd been out of contact with the world for about nine and a half years at that point. You know, and, and people had, you know, she, with her family she had some contact, but that was about it. And people had convinced her that the world perceived her as a monster. You know, and nobody would ever talk to her. The fact that I would, you know, I even, you know, I would acknowledge her, I mean, was... She was ecstatic. It took two years, two years of writing letters back and forth to convince Daryl that the women in San Antonio were innocent. Then he had to convince everyone else. Debbie Nathan. We all found it very odd that a stranger to the defendants would be advocating for them from so far away. And particularly, we were a little nervous that they were four young women. And we thought, you know, who is this guy? I mean, does he have some kind of a um, perverse fascination for these women because they're called female sex offenders? Or, you know, is he a sex offender? We, we just had no idea. We'd never had a situation like this. 
I mean, I guess our main concern was, is this guy a sex offender? It sounds so terrible to say it now, but um, we had a discussion, well, what do we do? I mean, how do we find this out? We don't even know how to do that in Canada. You know, we're just investigative people in the United States. Someone said, well, you can ask the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which you know, to me, it sounded like people on horses. Somebody said, you know, you can just pay them $50 and they'll do a records check. So we did that and it came back completely clean. He was clean as a whistle. There's not a lot of extra room in Daryl's cabin, but he's made space for boxes of Elizabeth's letters, everything. court transcripts, so these are just different documents from the police court. reports, mm-hmm. a prize statement. All collected over a seven-year period. Original stuff that they've written. Okay, there's our. So those are the the police reports, the original police reports. At the jury selection, one of the first questions to the jurors was, what's your moral position on homosexuality? Well, there is no connection, you know, but it was just, you know, that was just garden variety ignorance, but nobody ever questioned it. I mean, through the whole trials, nobody ever brought that up and questioned it. Which was, which was shocking. Child abuse expert Dr. Nancy Kellogg's testimony was key evidence in the trial. She said that in her medical examination, she saw markings on the little girl's hymens. She suggested it could be part of a satanic ritual prevalent among some lesbians. The medical doctor who got up there testified to things that had been de- thoroughly debunked by the medical community years before, you know, about these little girls. And... When you read the medical report, on the last page of the medical report, um, this woman who's a, a board-certified pediatrician in Texas had written, this is satanic-related, in the medical report. I mean, I just, you couldn't write this stuff. It was just unbelievable, I mean, as, as I read through it. Daryl created a website about the case. He had source documents to back everything up, but it wasn't enough. He had to win over public opinion to make the story of the San Antonio Four matter. And this is the part where Debbie says he had trouble. He just didn't see himself as a people person. I said, Daryl, um, have you spoken to this person in San Antonio? Have you interviewed this person? Because he was trying to gather information for his website. And, and he wrote me an email. He said, I'm just very uneasy talking to people. You know, I, I just can't do that. But... Um, you know, he came down to San Antonio and he put himself out. And it clearly wasn't a role that he's used to. And I just give him so much credit for that. The Texas Monthly agreed to publish a story about the case written by Daryl. From there, a couple of investigative stories were written by Texas reporters. But none of them seemed to have much impact. Then something happened. One of the girls recanted her story. And she says she remembers being seven years old. Very clearly, her father and her grandmother sitting her down and telling her that she had to tell this story. And if she didn't tell this story, she'd get beaten and she'd go to jail. Stephanie Martinez said their father, Javier Limon, had put them up to it. Daryl knew all about Javier. When Elizabeth was only 15, had started uh, making advances you know, on her, 
And I, I talked to Elizabeth's friends who said, you know, yeah, he would leave, um, he would sing songs on, on, the, on the answering machine and he would write her love letters. And, you know, she sent me copies of these. She had copies of these and she sent them to me. You know, he would offer to pay her bills, you know, and it was pretty obvious, offered, lend her car, lend her the car, et cetera. And she wasn't interested in him. Two years after Stephanie's recantation, the Innocence Project of Texas filed petitions to the state appeals court. But the primary argument made by the lawyer was based on science. Dr. Kellogg's evidence of vaginal markings was inconclusive. New science showed that the scars were not signs of abuse, and her exams that had taken place two months after the alleged attacks were wrong, also known as junk science. After spending more than 10 years behind bars for a crime, they say they didn't commit three of four San Antonio women infamously imprisoned for sexually assaulting two girls left prison Monday night. Elizabeth Ramirez, Christy Mayhew, and Cassandra Rivera were released last night. That was after a judge decided to recommend that an appeals court vacate their 1998 convictions as tainted by faulty witness testimony. Their friend and co-defendant, Anna Vazquez, joined the three women in court for the decision. She was also convicted of the case. Debbie Nathan was there that evening. And then they came out, and, and I was in this press of people, and I just, again, you know, tried to stick my tape recorder toward this massive, this massive sighing is what it was. It was just like, when they first came out, their closest loved ones, you know, their brothers and sisters and their moms, you know, just kind of surrounded them like, like the way you would a baby, you know, just covered them. And there was all this, like, I've never heard a noise like this before. You know, it, it was just sort of this mewling and sighing. You know, it's like, and all this, like, it was so intense. Um, it was really beautiful. I'd never seen anything like that. But one person was absent that night. Elizabeth spent 17 years in prison. For almost seven of those years, Daryl Otto was in her life. But he'd stopped writing. You kind of learn to, like, whenever... You write people, it's kind of emotional when you share a lot. So I did get, you know, like I would tell them that I loved them and I cared about them. And I always used to tell them about God, and he's not really a God, a spiritual kind of guy at all. So I would tell them he was our angel sent from God. It was like, oh, there you go with that again. And, you know, things like that. So, um, like I said, he, you know, it kind of, I did kind of get my feelings hurt a little bit when he kind of withdrew, but I kind of had to. You know, um, I think they were happy to hear from somebody from the outside, but. I mean, the reality is, you know, they, they, they live in, you know, in San Antonio in a different culture, in a different world. Um, and, and what I, you know, I, I had something I could contribute to them. I could, I could help them figure out how to solve this problem, but we don't have a whole lot in common outside of that. How do you map the borders of a friendship? 
I live here in a rural area. They live in a very urban kind of lifestyle and I'm, I'm not a manager, I'm an architect. You know, I'm good at solving problems, figuring out how to solve problems and, and dealing with data, but the day-to-day -day management of stuff and that, that's not my thing. And dealing with people is not my thing. So, you know, I, I, I'm very clear on what my skills were and what I could, what I can contribute. And once I'd done that, you know, it was time to, time to let somebody else take it over. Sometimes it exists for a reason, for a time. It was hard to let go of it. It was hard to do that. You know, it was just me. And at the end, there were dozens of people involved. But does that make it any easier to let go? I was interested in, in what had happened. At the same, you know, I, I genuinely liked Elizabeth Ramirez. I mean, I think as I got to know her better, I mean, um, and know who she was as a person, that, uh, you know, I, to meet somebody with that, that much integrity and that much courage, you know, that, you know, that we'll let you to jail if you just admit you're guilty. And she said, no way. And she's facing 37 years. She's got a 37-year sentence. You know, and I think at that point, the only thing she had left was her integrity, and she wasn't giving it up. I'd tell her about my life, and, you know, her life didn't change much. You know, every day in prison is pretty much the same. As we went further in the case, you know, I, you know, we kind of developed this friendship. Ethically, you know, morally, once I knew they were innocent, I couldn't leave them there. 